Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted about Chicago's comic book convention, learned about brain theory, and discussed how capitalism is destroying rural America. All this plus the Trump Diaries, AWCYFM, and Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 28, 2020. Chuck Mertz spoke to anthropologist Mark Edelman about capitalism's effect on rural America. Edelman argues that capital concentrations deliberately left rural areas bereft of resources, leading to massive inequality, unrest, and our current political climate. This is Hell airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Small town in rural America were destroyed and continue to be destroyed by neoliberal financialization, which has made them the perfect targets ripe for authoritarian populism. At least that's what today's guest argues, here to help us understand what the hell has been happening in the hinterland. Anthropologist Mark Edelman is author of the Jacobin Magazine article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. Mark teaches anthropology as a professor at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Edelman, NYC. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mark. Nice to be here. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for being on the show. This is a fantastic article, and I know a lot of people wrote about uh, what was taking place in rural America with sweeping generalizations immediately after the election in 2016, so I really appreciate this far better analysis than what we heard right after the election of 2016. Let's go back to that election, as you do at the beginning of your article. You write in the wake of that 2016 U.S. presidential election, the liberal intelligentsia belatedly realized that rural and small-town America was in crisis. One sector of liberal opinion insisted that the key to Donald Trump's victory lay in racism rather than economic distress. Another sector, blind to the central importance of racial inequality for U.S. capitalism, preferred to stress narrowly economic explanations for Trump's rise. Both schools of thought failed to grasp the different ways in which economic suffering, racism, and community decline have interacted to prepare the ground for authoritarian populism. Who are the liberal intelligentsia? And the reason that I'm asking you this is because I'm trying to determine, are the liberal intelligentsia, do you see it as the punditocracy or is it the DNC itself? Well, I was thinking more of the punditocracy, actually, but the DNC, I think, in some ways was even more oblivious. Uh, What I pointed to at the uh, beginning of the article is how, uh, for example, certain uh, regular columnists, opinion columnists for the New York Times, including my esteemed CUNY colleague, uh, economist Paul Krugman, were very insistent on pointing to uh, racial animus as being the uh, one and only motivation of the Trump voter. And um, I wanted to um, connect a few dots and, and, and recognize that the Trump electorate is actually a bit more diverse in class and geographical terms and with uh, correspondingly diverse motivations. Uh, and I also want to connect some dots in terms of thinking about how economic distress um, is in some ways um, a, a factor, a, a, a condition that um, makes it easier to embrace racist and anti-immigrant and and other reactionary kinds of arguments. Um, so I, on the one hand, I was looking both at the 
this compartmentalization of explanations for uh, the 2016 presidential election outcome, on the one hand, economic distress, on the other hand, racism, and also trying to look at the threads that connect these two aspects, both of which I think are clearly uh, relevant. How do we misunderstand the world around us when we do compartmentalize economic distress, distress from racism? Well, I think there are two things that uh, I tried to look at in the article that maybe um, would be useful to think about in relation to that question. Uh, the first is the phenomenon of uh, financial actors playing an increasing role in um, rural zones. And when I talk about capitalism in the title of the article, I'm really talking mainly about the more cutthroat version of capitalism that we've had since the 1980s. Uh, some people call it neoliberalism. The idea, it's an extremist idea really, that the market can and should resolve all of society's problems. Um, and the importance of financialization is that increasingly financial actors, private equity groups, hedge funds, pension funds, and so on, are um, acquiring assets not in order necessarily to produce anything, but rather to see how they can strip them and flip them and load them up with debt and, and make money off of destroying them. And part of the genius of financial capital is, is its endless uh, create creativity uh, in terms of thinking of ways to do this. Uh, so it, it's not simply if we look, for example, at deindustrialization. It's not simply that workers in Mexico or China uh, have lower wages, which they do, and it's not simply a question of factory flight or automation for that matter. Uh, it also has to do with the way uh, the financial actors loaded companies up with debt and, and then managed uh, through various mechanisms, including repaying the debt sometimes, to suck all the, uh, the juice out of those companies and uh, take it back to uh, major metropolitan areas. So there was a, a, a displacement of wealth geographically out of rural zones into major metropolitan areas and in class terms, a displacement of wealth upward, uh, which is part of the exaggerated levels of, of wealth and income inequality that we're, we're seeing in this society and elsewhere in the world. Um, I'm reminded, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the countryside, but mostly in developing countries. And in Latin America, I saw people and farms and businesses and communities constantly struggling to appropriate a larger share of the wealth that they produced. And sometimes they managed to do that, but often they weren't very successful. And, and those experiences in developing countries, I realized, uh, actually provided lessons for looking at the United States because there are a lot of parallels. Um, so the, the United States in, in, in certain ways is not as exceptional as, as many people uh, seem to believe. There's an active process um, of uh, some people have called it internal colonialism of the developed uh, metropoles preying on uh, rural and small town areas. 
Uh, earlier, you were mentioning Paul Krugman and this kind of focus on racial animus that came out right after the election in 2016. What is that exaggeration of racial animus? What does that reveal to you about uh, liberal intelligentsia, intelligentsia? Is this an attempt to avoid discussing capitalism's shortcomings? Is this an, an attempt to avoid talking about neoliberalism? What does that kind of focus on racial animus reveal to you about liberal intelligentsia or the Democratic Party in general? Well, I don't think the focus on racial animus is wrong. Uh, I think in, in many respects it, it, it's important to call attention to that. Um, but it also reflects in some ways a blindness to 30 years or so of uh, downward mobility on the part of uh, a significant sector uh, of the population in the United States. Um, and the first victims of this were often people of color, but there were a lot of white victims too. And the process of downward mobility um, led people, uh, I think, to feel abandoned um, by the Democratic Party of the Clintons and the Obamas, for example, um, because they understood, people understood that the these administrations were implementing policies that uh, actually favored the dominant groups uh, and were not very favorable to working people in many cases. Um, so I think it, it's it's useful to to acknowledge uh, the the racism of, of many Trump voters uh, but at the same time uh, one should not uh, by acknowledging the racism downplay or ignore the processes of downward economic mobility that have been very dramatic and, and very harmful and hurtful and it have led uh, many people to feel abandoned by the Democratic Party. You write that since the turn to more cutthroat free market policies in the 1980s, American capitalism has systematically underdeveloped rural and small town regions of the United States. But was that good for capitalism? Is capitalism better off than it would be if it had not systematically underdeveloped rural and small town America? Because I think that's that's the issue. The issue is that it's still incentivized, that it's still a good thing for America to underdevelop rural and small town America. Well, that's uh, possibly a much larger discussion, and one would have to, I think, take into account uh, different uh, varieties of capitalism and approaches to capitalism. Uh, certainly, the type of um, poverty and economic desperation uh, and stress that one sees in the United States is different than in other normal developed countries. When I start to look at the poverty indicators, um, it's interesting that 12 or 14 percent of the U.S. population is below the official poverty line. But what is maybe more important to consider is that there's another 40 percent that are called uh, Alice households, asset limited, income constrained, employed. These are the people who are within about 150 percent of the poverty line. So they're, they're not technically poor, and they're often working multiple low-wage jobs, never knowing what shift they have the next week. And, and 
it's not an exaggeration at this point to say that the majority of the U.S. population is poor or near poor. This is a long-term process. It's occurred over the last 30 or more years. Um, so one of the things that prompted me to write this article is why aren't people talking about this in those terms? Why don't we acknowledge that a majority of the population is poor or near poor? Even our most progressive presidential candidates are not saying it in those terms. And there doesn't seem to be massive outrage from the media. The outrage that um, becomes relevant is the outrage of those who are directly affected and who become uh, susceptible to the appeal of authoritarian demagogues. John Daly chatted with Christina Rogers, the head of Chicago's Best Kept Secret, the C2E2 comic book convention. Welcoming over 90,000 people to McCormick Place this weekend, Rogers talked about the joys and challenges of pitching such a huge event and her favorite guests. Radio Free Bridgeport with the regular John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. And we've got one of the organizers of C2E2, which is coming up. Uh, Christina Rogers on the phone. How you doing, Christina? Doing well. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. We're inside. It's snowing outside, so we're warm and toasty. <laughs> it's Fat Tuesday. There's punch keys. Yeah, and you know the C two E two is the happiest time of the year because we're both big comic book nerds. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. So uh, we actually had Tim Seeley on here what two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I think Tim's going to be at the show, and, and we've had a bunch of other people who yeah. are actually going to be tabling over there. And, of course, Tim is uh, oh, Chicago nice. Chicago uh, comic book royalty, as I like to call uh-huh. him. So, though that probably would embarrass him and, and Gene Ha as well. So, um, <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, for people who don't know what C2E2 is, it's down at McCormick Place. Uh, excuse me. It is down at McCormick Place. Am I correct? It is down at McCormick Place. I always get that screwed up. Can you tell us a little bit about, for the novice, what C2E2 is? Yeah, absolutely. So it's coming up this weekend, February 28th through March 1st, and C2E2 is a comic and entertainment expo that just collects all of the very best of pop culture and drops it into one very warm place for you guys to hang out in all weekend. So we have celebrity guests, awesome comic creators, we have anime voice actors just running the full gamut. And it's really expanded uh, the the focus of of not not just the uh, the folks attending, but um, the folks presenting it at your uh, your event. Yeah, we we really take to heart being an entertainment expo and not just a comic con. Uh, we run a lot of comic cons at Read Pop, but this allows us to say, if I'm a fan of anime and I love anime, what does my show look like and what do I want to come for? If I love comics and I'm a huge, huge backbend nerd, who are we bringing in and how do we appeal? So that no matter what you're into, we have, we have a whole day's worth of programming for you. And C2E2, I, I remember when it started, it, it, it started out kind of small and there were other you know, yeah. bigger conventions such as Wizard World <laughs> yep. and stuff like that. You guys have really become one of the largest now comic 
and entertainment cons in in North America. You know, maybe only San Diego yeah. is, is bigger. How how did that growth happen? And it, it it's kind of surprising because to me, it still is a little bit under the radar. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, it's not as you know, San Diego shuts down for a week for for their Comic Con. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen any closures on Lakeshore Drive uh, so far <laughs> yet. Uh, yet, uh, you know, well, the traffic does get a little thick on Saturday morning over here. Yes, yeah, snow's coming. But can can you tell us a little bit about the growth of, of C two E two and how you guys have managed to build it up into into this major thing? Yeah, it's C two E two is really a labor of love in the team, and it's the focus that they have placed on how much we love Chicago, and we do have some of the best fans out here, just kind and excited, and really focused on community, and that's how we approach the show. So watching it grow over the last eleven years has been really an honor. Like, we were very emotional last year. It was our biggest year. We brought in 90,000 people. Um, it was a massive show, and it went so well. And it's all because of the community. You know, it's that we really care about what Chicago wants. You know, we're not coming in and saying, this is what we're going to do. It's what are our fans asking us for, and how can we make it even better? And how many people are you expecting this time around? Uh, this year, I'm looking at probably a little over 95,000. That's incredible. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Are there any, I mean, you know, I, I, you, you say this is a labor of love. What What is your particular yeah. area of focus? Are you a comic person, anime? Uh, what do you I come about? by my geekiness. <laughs> I come by my geekiness very honestly. I used to manage a comic book store way back in the day. Um, so I'm a big comic nerd. And then Star mm-hmm. Trek. I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad. Um, it was my first exposure to the geek world. And I was I was a goner. It was all Picard. Oh, Picard. Well, Picard's got a new show. And, of course, Thursday, uh, you have Thursday circled on your calendar then now? I, I, oh, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> absolutely. So you, who, are, who are the guys you're most excited then to be able to present? I know that uh, Bill Shatner's going to be there, obviously. Uh, yeah. But uh, who, who are some of the, the big names that you're really excited to be able to present at, at C2ET this year? Uh, this year, on the entertainment side, we have Stephen Amell coming, and that's really exciting because Arrow just wrapped up. We have Terry Brooks and Rainbow Rowell on the literary side, which I'm a big Terry Brooks fan, so that's mm-hmm. really exciting for me. Um, but my big, my big two are Gail Simone, who I've been a longtime fan of, and then Team X-Men is coming. We have Jonathan Hickman, Jerry Duggan, Benjamin Pierce, Leah Williams, and Teeny Howard all in the house, and they are presenting a very, very cool panel that I am going to miss as usual. But I look forward to hearing about it. That's amazing. Yeah, John Hickman, of course, for people that don't know, just relaunched uh, the X-Men over at Marvel Comics in a, in a pretty major thing. And uh, Gil yeah, Simone... Yeah, and this team are killing it. Yeah, and Gil Simone, I think, is actually going to be on Radio Free. So uh, we'll, we'll hold oh, off. Good. Yeah, we'll hold off on talking about her. But if you've seen any movies with a certain bat-wielding uh, ex-girlfriend <laughs> of the Joker, then you know what Gil Simone has done. Um, talk to us a little bit about what goes into making this happen because you know this isn't something you just throw up in a weekend and walk away from and (laughs) and hope it goes off well this is a massive expo and i know as the event director um you're probably putting out a lot of fires and again we thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with us there could be things burning right now that we're not aware of but tell us a little bit about what first of all how long does this take to get going and and what's what are some of the challenges you have to deal with um it takes us a little over a year. You know, we're, we've already started working on C2E2 2021 and lining up guests. Um, but the real work starts right after the show when we do our post-show survey. And it sounds so boring, but it's true. You know, we really do read through everything that people say, what they loved, what they didn't love, what they want for next year. Um, and the biggest obstacles we have going around that is just scheduling. You know, people, other creators and entertainment guests and actors, they all have lives. 
Um, they could be filming production. They could be in the middle of a very big book series and not able to make it out. Um, so it's going from, all right, if this is list A, and then these people aren't available, what's, who's the second best people that we can get in, and how, how do we best balance that for our fans? What are some of the things that have surprised you when uh, you've through the evolution of the of the show? Um, <laughs> I think the things that surprise me are the cosplay. Like it doesn't surprise me how popular cosplay is, but what surprises me is every single year they're bringing to us an ingenious new problem to try to help them figure out how to get around because people are starting to get into robotics and, you know, <laughs> we have security measures. So we got to talk through that. People always want to bring in um, psychic animals and we got to talk through that. Uh, Large bring swords. In <laughs> Large <laughs> swords. Yeah. And it's stuff like that where it's really uh, the devil is in the details. It's always the little things that trip us up. And, uh, you know, people, one year we had somebody ask if they could bring in their horse. And, and the oh, horse God. is a very integral part of their cosplay. Okay. Did they bring the horse in? No, we did have to say no. No okay. horses. Sorry, guys. Yeah. I, I don't blame you on that one. <laughs> um, what What are some of the, the key moments that you've had? How long have you been with the show, first of all? Um, I've been with C22 for five years. Okay. What What are some of the memories, the top memories you've had or, or guests that you got to see? Or even panels that you knew were great that you had to miss because you had to be putting out fires? <laughs> every panel. I always miss every panel. Um, you know, I think my favorite memory was three years ago. We had a fan contact us before the show and let us know that he had met his girlfriend at C2E2 five years prior to that, and he really wanted to propose to her. So we went out of our way and helped. Like, we got our video team involved. We allowed him to do it on the main stage on the main stage right before a really big panel of her favorite guests um, and just seeing that moment and we have a lot of moments like that you know that seeing how much this means to people and what we do is we come in and we build a, a pop culture city for three or four days but and then we disappear and it's easy to forget that people take these memories with them their whole lives and they make friends here and they meet futures here and it's just it's really humbling to be able to be a part of creating that for people. I hope the woman said yes. She did say yes. Okay, good. <laughs> I really, <laughs> we, we always have that moment. Okay, of like, yeah. oh gosh, I hope this is. Yeah. With uh, comics as a foundation, as, as you, you've talked about in the evolution of the show, yeah. um, what, you know, it seems that all of the intellectual properties from comic books, <laughs> from even animation, are seeing their way into either an animation and or a live action um, version through streaming services mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other offerings, um, and it seems like this is this is constantly a venue to offer uh, new trailers and new announcements. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's been a new touch point. Have you seen that uh, or are anticipating that to be the case this year? Yes, I am. It's it's great to see on the industry side editors and people from studios walking through Artist Alley and talking with creators and um, bridging those new connections. And I love, you know, I love when our comic books become this really popular property and attention, you know, look at Joe Hill, for instance, Lock and Key just came out and and he's going to be at the show. And it's such a, it's such a great thing to help lift the art in our industry and keep the focus on the core of what a Comic-Con is. And it's, you know, it's Artist Alley, it's those comic creators in there. 
And of course, you know, this week has been a very unusual one in the comic book world with the news about uh, Dan DiDio over at uh, DC Comics. I mean, that's going to be, for John, if you don't know, Dan, uh, who had been the publisher there for 18 years, uh, was unceremoniously let go last Friday. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm assuming that is going to be a a hot topic of conversation. Do I dare ask if DC is actually going to be still presenting any panels and stuff? DC is coming. Um, Jim Lee is going to be there. We have a Spotlight Jim Lee panel. Um, DC is presenting some publishing focus and some books. It'll be very interesting um, to join the conversations at the show about what DCs where they're going to be putting their feet. Yeah, because uh, that's that's for those of you that follow the comic book industry. Dan uh, was in the middle of doing uh, a pretty or uh-huh. is rumored to be doing a, a very large relaunch of the entire brand called Generation uh, Five. Yes. So I think that's going to be kind of interesting. I'm so curious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they talked about Generation mm-hmm. 5 at New York Comic Con, and, right. um, you know, they've been teasing it for months and months. It's going to be, I'm curious if they're going to be moving forward with it or yeah. putting it to the side. And, of course, Joe Hill, uh, you know, has, as you mentioned, Joe Hill, he's got a comic book line out now from D.C. as well, uh, the Hill House uh, imprint. And uh, Dan had, of course, been heavily rumored, at least, to be bringing in a number of new creators from TV, particularly from, uh, you know, the Arrowverse and, and the Greg Berlanti DC scape. So that, that's going to be an interesting topic, I bet, along Artist Alley. Uh, real quick, because mm-hmm. we know you got to go. And, and by the way, thank you, of course, for making space for Sven Gulli at C2E2. Uh, that, <laughs> Always. You know, that's, that's something that, you know, us fans of Berwin need. Um, where can people get more information? Uh, and I, I, you know... We're a non-commercial station, so I, you know, we can't say, you know, go to do this, but are passes still available? Can people still get in? Passes are absolutely available, and if you're interested in learning more, you can head over to ctt.com. Have a nice Whoa, night. traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... Hold, uh, hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me. I soap them up and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. Oh, oh my God. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? 
I wonder, are you washing that car with my clothes? Hey, don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry dead. Oh, here comes the meltdown. Jamie, I answer the phone. <laughs> Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go. This week on The Trump Diaries, Roger Stone gets three years in jail as Trump rages. Lawmakers are warned Russia is working for Trump again. Trump claims wrongly that the coronavirus is under control. Trump moves to purge suspected anti-Trumpers. Trump attacks the Supreme Court. And Trump claims it's all Adam Schiff's fault. Got nothing to do with Putin. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 1128, February 21st. Roger Stone was sentenced to more than three years in prison for witness tampering and lying in a bid to protect Trump. At the time, Trump's campaign was under investigation for conspiracy with Russia to influence the 2016 presidential election. The case has become a lightning rod with Trump attacking the prosecutors, the forewoman of the jury, and the federal judge claiming falsely that Stone was the victim of a vendetta. Trump claims Stone has, quote, a very good chance of exoneration because I personally think he was treated very unfairly. Trump accused the forewoman of the jury of being an anti-Trump activist, claiming she tainted the trial. One former senior administration official added on the question of a pardon for Stone, quote, it's not a question of if, it's when. Intelligence officials warned House lawmakers that Russia is interfering in the 2020 campaign to try and get Trump re-elected. The blunt briefing, which revealed that Russia intended to interfere with the 2020 Democratic primaries as well as the general election, is said to have angered Trump, who complained that Democrats would use it against him. Trump reportedly erupted and berated his acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, in the Oval Office following that meeting, claiming McGuire had been disloyal. Trump also erroneously believes that McGuire had given information exclusively to Representative Adam Schiff that Democrats would weaponize. Trump's re-election campaign and the Republican National Committee are spending more than $10 million to challenge Democratic voting-related lawsuits. A Democratic-aligned issues PAC is suing states over laws that restrict organizers from helping voters submit absentee ballots. Other laws being targeted include those that make it a misdemeanor to transport voters to their polling places unless voters are, quote, physically unable to walk. A GOP spokesman said Democrats, quote, are trying to rig the game with frivolous lawsuits that do nothing but create electoral chaos, waste taxpayer money, and distract election officials in an attempt to advance the Democrats' voter suppression myth. One day after Trump denied this was the case, former Rep. Dana Rohrabacher confirmed that he did tell WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange he would get Trump to pardon him if he turned over information proving that Russia didn't hack the Democratic National Committee email archive. Rohrabacher said his goal was to find proof for a debunked conspiracy theory that WikiLeaks sort for the emails was former DNC staffer Seth Rich. Day 1129, February 22nd. Trump publicly called the assessment that Russia is meddling in the 2020 presidential election hoax number seven and added it was another misinformation campaign by Democrats. Trump fired Joseph McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, and replaced him with Richard Grinnell, who is currently the U.S. ambassador to Germany and a Trump loyalist. Grinnell used to work for an Eastern European despot, whom the United States is accused of corruption. Grinnell's public relations firm was paid to write articles in 2016 defending the Moldovan politician Vladimir Platunich. 
Grinnell did not register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. That is, of course, the same law that Paul Manafort and Rick Gates are convicted of violating. He also did not disclose he was being paid to write those articles. Vladenich has been banned from entering the United States. And a parasite criticized the Academy Awards for naming the movie Parasite this year's best picture. Claiming that it shouldn't have won because it was from South Korea, Trump said, quote, we got enough problems with South Korea on trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. The FBI briefed Senator Bernie Sanders that Russia is also attempting to help his presidential campaign. Trump was also informed. Russia previously used social media to help Sanders in the 2016 campaign against Hillary Clinton. Sanders said in a terse statement, quote, I don't care, frankly, who Putin wants to be president. Day 1130, February 23rd. Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney said the United States is desperate and needs more immigrants to come in a legal fashion in order for the United States economy to continue growing. Speaking to a private group in England, Mulvaney claimed, we are desperate, desperate for more people. We are running out of people to fuel the economic growth that we've had in our nation for over the last four years. We need more immigrants. The Trump administration has made it nearly impossible for legal immigrants to gain visas. And Trump's new personnel chief has told agency officials to identify anti-Trump political appointees. John McEnity has been asked by Trump to purge, quote, the bad people and the deep state, starting with personnel at the State Department and the Secretary of Defense. McEnity was previously sacked from his post over security concerns related to an online gambling habit. Trump told aides he wants fewer people working in the White House and only loyalists working in certain positions. Trump is convinced his administration is filled with snakes and he's on the hunt for the bad people inside the White House and the government who he's been warned about. Just as Clarence Thomas's wife is one of those people, she is leading a network of conservative activists who've been compiling lists of supposedly disloyal government officials. Jimmy Thomas has provided the White House with memos and suggestions about who to fire, when to fire, and who to replace them with. Day 1131, February 24th. Trump's National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, contradicted his own intelligence agency and claimed there was no intelligence behind reports that Russia is interfering in the 2020 elections to help Trump. O'Brien claimed the House Intelligence Committee either misheard or misinterpreted part of last week's briefing. This is untrue. In response, the U.S. intelligence community clarified that Russia is absolutely interfering in the 2020 election and is attempting to help Trump get reelected. Trump then accused Adam Schiff of leaking classified information to the media. Quote, somebody please tell incompetent thanks for my high poll numbers and corrupt politician Adam Shifty Schiff to stop leaking classified information or even worse, made up information to the fake news media. Someday he will be caught and that will be a very unpleasant experience. Trump wrongly believes that Schiff was the sole recipient of an intelligence briefing that said Russia has developed a preference for Trump and is trying to make sure he is re-elected. Trump claimed that bailout funding for farmers would be paid for out of the massive tariff money coming into the USA. Trump allocated $16 billion in 2019 and $12 billion in 2018 to help farmers make up for losses due to Trump's trade war with China. China has also promised to purchase $40 billion worth of goods. However, due to the coronavirus outbreak, it is thought China will not meet that target. Day 1132, February 25th. Trump appeared with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in India for a rally at a 110,000-seat cricket stadium. Saying, America loves India, America respects India, Trump then announced India would buy $3 billion worth of U.S. weapons and military equipment. 
Trump also called John Bolton a traitor and claims his upcoming book should be blocked before the November election. Trump claims that everything he said to Bolton about national security is classified. Trump's National Security Council said Bolton's draft manuscript appears to contain significant amounts of classified information, some of it top secret. Trump then attacked two liberal Supreme Court justices, claiming that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor are somehow biased against him and therefore should recuse themselves from cases involving the administration. Trump accused Sotomayor of trying to shame other justices into voting her way after she issued a dissent last week that the court has been too quick to grant emergency relief to the federal government. Trump also tweeted that Sotomayor never criticized Justice Ginsburg when she called me a faker, without explaining why she would do that. These attacks came despite pleas from Trump's own attorney general to stop complicating his own legal fights. Trump's attacks on the judiciary have largely backfired. Plaintiffs in several cases have used his tweets as evidence against him. Ginsburg and Sotomayor did not respond. Trump claimed the coronavirus currently ravaging Europe, the Middle East, and China is, quote, going to go away and that the virus is very well under control in our country. We think they'll be in very good shape very, very soon. Larry Kudlow, the director of the National Economic Council, added that, quote, we have contained this and that people should be as calm as possible. This assessment was dismissed by the World Health Organization, Trump's own CDC, and lawmakers of both parties roundly criticized the administration as inept and ill-prepared. The CDA said the spread of the coronavirus in the United States appears inevitable, and we should prepare for the expectation that this might be bad. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar told the Senate, quote, this is an unprecedented, potentially severe health challenge globally. Who said the world is not ready for a major outbreak? The mortality rate from the coronavirus is currently sitting at 2%. It is also untreatable as it is a viral infection. By comparison, the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic had a mortality rate of 2.5%. 50 million people died in that epidemic worldwide. Trump then asked Congress to approve $2.5 billion in emergency spending to address the coronavirus. More than $1 billion would go toward creating a coronavirus vaccine. Experts said this isn't close to being adequate funding and instead benchmarked the number at closer to $8 billion. Worth noting also is that Trump's proposed new budget would cut the CDC by almost 16% and the Health and Human Services budget by 10%. Trump then claimed he wants no help from any country with his re-election bid. Trump then accused House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff of leaking information that Russia is interfering in the election to help Trump. And Rush Limbaugh, a recent Trump Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, claimed the coronavirus outbreak is a bioweapon created by China in a lab that is being weaponized by the media to bring down Trump. Quote, it's nothing more than a common cold. Day 1133, February 26th. The Democrats debated again last night, seeing Bernie Sanders taking sustained fire from all other contenders. Calling him a divisive figure with unrealistic ideas, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg sought to portray themselves as electable moderates. Joe Biden is currently leading in South Carolina polls. Michael Bloomberg recovered from his disastrous opening debate, but also took fire for his wealth and alleged past statements. The judge in the Roger Stone case hit back at Trump, warning his tweets had helped fuel threats to the jury. Judge Amy Jackson said, quote, the president of the United States used his Twitter platform to disseminate a particular point of view about a juror. Any attempt to invade the privacy of the jurors or to harass or to intimidate them is completely antithetical to our system of justice. They deserve to have their privacy protected. 
Trump responded in real time by tweeting, quote, there rarely has been a juror so tainted as the floor woman in the Roger Stone case. Look at her background. She never revealed her hatred of Trump and Stone. She was totally biased, as is the judge. Roger wasn't even working on my campaign. Miscarriage of justice, sad to watch. Roger Stone, of course, was working on Trump's campaign. Congress has summoned Defense Secretary Mark Esper to testify before the House Armed Services Committee about Esper's decision to divert funding from the military in order to pay for Trump's border wall. The partisan summons to Esper read in part, quote, Congress alone has the constitutional authority to determine how the nation spends its defense dollars. The Department of Defense cannot ignore congressional will in pursuit of their own priorities. Trump's war with New York in particular and blue states in general has put an ambitious program to add congestion pricing in Manhattan in jeopardy. The plan was expected to raise up to $1 billion annually in fees from drivers in the most congested of Manhattan neighborhoods. In turn, those funds would help pay for badly needed improvements to the subway. However, Trump's Federal Highway Administration is holding the plan up, apparently in retaliation for New York's status as a sanctuary city. Also, Trump unexpectedly halted a project to protect the New York City region from flooding during dangerous storms like Hurricane Sandy. That came after Trump took to Twitter to ridicule the study's most expensive proposal, a giant seawall that could have cost $63 billion. Trump had tweeted incorrectly a massive $200 billion seawall built around New York to protect it from rare storms is a costly, foolish, and environmentally unfriendly idea that when needed probably won't work anyway. It will also look terrible. Sorry, you'll just have to get your mops and buckets ready. In a strange decision, the White House has employed a college senior as a top official in the presidential personnel office. Jason Bacon, who is 23 years old, is pursuing a bachelor's degree at George Washington University. He is reporting to John McKennity, Trump's former body man, who is overseeing a purge of alleged disloyal officials in the government. 64% of small business owners approve of the way Trump is handling his job as president. Immigration visas under Trump have dropped by 17%. Just 21% of Americans think Roger Stone should be pardoned. Trump's approval rating continues to fall. It is now at 43%. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke to Michael Zapata, author of The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. Zapata talked about particle physics, Latin America's history of invented histories, and the flip side of storytelling. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. It's not a secret history. It's a history that we kind of have willingly forgotten. Yes. You know, yeah. The reason that those stories are told is because they occurred in a space because people went in there and ripped everybody, ripped everybody yeah. apart. Yeah. So it was and very easy for some white guy in 1882 to go, oh, it's completely plausible. Now that, let's fictionalize yeah. yes. and moving yeah. forward. So that... I, I always found it fascinating, and Adana becomes fascinated in it too. But this in, in the in the novel, but this fascination not only with lost histories, but at the end of the Victorian Empire, this fascination with creating history as fictions, creating entire fictions. And so it wasn't even in the science fiction novels, but when you look at old Victorian newspapers that would come home with fantastical stories predating yellow journalism, um, I remember distinctly reading about this Victorian journalist who convinced people that in Latin America, indigenous people had heads in the middle of their chests, that there were giant spiders the size of small homes. Like he convinced uh, this illusionary 
history. So I, I kept thinking how much was Britain going around the world, not only like replicating fictions, but forcing their own illusionary history yeah, on others. I, I know Jeremy wants to get a question, but yeah. you know, just but we spoke about Ben Hecht fairly recently as well. And Ben Hecht, when he was working for the Chicago News, made up things out of whole cloth. <laughs> you know, he, he wrote about marauding gangs and pirates in the streets of Chicago. <laughs> so this wasn't just a, you know, I, I guess right, my yeah. point is that this wasn't just a crazy, oh, these crazy English people <laughs> who are crazy, by the way. They just left the European Union. Um, I do want to point that out. Uh, but no, this, this whole thing and these whole histories and... Uh, again, I want to let Jeremy jump in here, but I, I want to come back to this thread in a second because one of the other things you do very brilliantly is kind of have this imagined thread of history through the book, which is something mm. that, that dates way back, and I, yeah, I, I do yeah, want yeah. to jump into that. So. Uh, Mike's going to say something, and I'll say something. We'll go back to Gene. Okay. Um, well, we're talking about one side of the coin with, with uh, people of exile and, and the places they come from in yeah. terms of fabricated history, but there's, there's also... a huge theme of preservation yeah. in the book. Yeah, um, yeah. And we, we were talking a little bit about historical novels before the show. Did you did you think of this as a historical novel or more of a, as a fantastical novel? That, yeah, that's a great question. I, I didn't think too much of it. I always like to think of this as, when you look at the present, like I, I do think it's a novel of the present because of the sense of when you look at the present, you're forced to deal with how the past and the future collide in the present. So we pull with us this historical weight or this historical thread with us no matter, even if we don't know what that historical thread is, which is a common American problem, you're still anchored to it in ways that we possibly might not understand. It, that The past is like shadows from other worlds. But then when you're dealing with the present, we're human. So we're always conditionally thinking about future possibilities and what is potentially available to us in the future based on her historical anchors. And that is that is the narrative of an exile. That is the narrative of an exile who is pulling with them across continents, across nations and oceans, this historical narrative, but has to find themselves on these new shores, so to speak, and imagine a future that's available to them and contest with the futures that are absolutely closed to them. So when I think of science fiction or fantasy or futurism, and I think of historical writing, they were interchangeable in, in the way uh, I thought about how they functioned. That's actually a great segue for my question. One of my favorite things about doing the show is that, you know, I, is learning about new authors. Uh, Jamie has turned me on to a ton of authors. Jamie's mother has turned me on to a bunch of authors, awesome. and Mike and, and Aaron and Mary, the owners of the bookstore. And my question is, some of the authors and books that you talk about are made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them are not. Yeah. So what made you decide to have that transition with made-up books and mm -hmm. also real books. Because I, a couple authors I looked up, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> These guys aren't real. And I was just wondering what, uh, I guess, inspired you to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it sucks. We only have one life. And I want to, like, write more books and get ideas <laughs> for books. And you're like, I, I'm never going to write this. But it's it, it pulls. I tried to pull distinctly from there's this really fun sort of modernist, like Latin American game. Borges was the master of it, just creating this landscape, this invented landscape. Bolaño did it life. too. Bolaño, yeah, yeah. like Roberto Bolaño, I was gonna say, 2666 yeah. immediately came up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ways. And uh, oh, Nazi great. literature of the Americas. Yes, oh my that God. was the one. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, invents yeah, yeah. a bunch oh, of. Oh, that is, I, I'm, I shiver every time I think about that book. Both of them, but Nazi literature. So yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this. It, it is this, in one sense, this literary game, but it also is playing off this idea 
of Latin America being a place which has had to contest with histories more so than the United States layered on top of each other that sustain themselves. So like, for example, I was speaking before the show, my, my grandmother's indigenous, she's, she's, she's Quechua. And you have this extraordinary thing in many Latin American countries where although the Spanish and the Brazilian tried their uh, utmost to erase these histories, they persisted. And so you have this like Latin American literature in which invented histories become a form of, of power, right? We, I'm going to invent my own literature. And it also becomes this just like fun board haze type game. I found just straight up as a writer that once I started summarizing fake novels, I couldn't stop. You made a very interesting point a couple of minutes ago about Latin America's invented fiction. And you said, you know, uh, my grandmother is an indigenous person. The people tried to erase her culture. I wanted to flip that on its head because some of the invented culture was, in fact, trying to erase some of the indigenous cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Some of Latin Americans, uh, and that is kind of the flip side, in a sense, of, of some of the stuff you're talking about. Um, it's, it's all well and good to sit here and, and talk about fake novels. And there's a great you know, tradition of things like the Necronomicon, yeah, which is yeah, a yeah, fake yeah. book passed yeah. down through dozens of books from H.P. Lovecraft right, right along, yeah. uh, August Lath and all those people. But the, the flip side of that, and it's a more sinister side, is that some of the stories that we do tell are to cover up some of the uncomfortable things that happen. Yes, I mean, if we yeah, go back yeah, yeah. and look at, say, for example, the story of Lemuria, some, some of that story is talking about people who are subhuman. They live yeah. under the earth. Yeah. They're, they're different. So when you know, the people go and, and conquer them, it is a liberation. Mm -hmm. Some of the stories in Latin America, and I, I, I thought, you know, Roberto Bolaño did a really interesting job with this because, you know, he sends up Nazi literature, which is an obvious... So brilliant. Well, I mean, yeah. for people that don't know the history of Latin America, um, they have a lovely history of fascism everywhere yeah, yeah, from yeah. Paraguay, Argentina, and Chile, and of course some of the... Backed the, by American... Backed by American presidents power. Presidents wearing of course, tweed yeah. jackets. So some of those stories, though, were to, in a sense, normalize some of the mm -hmm. things that the people in power did. Yeah. Some of those things yeah. were stories they told themselves. They weren't stories of preservation. They were stories of control. And I think that is, the, the in a way, the flip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a really important thread to talk about in your book. Well, and I think, too, I definitely came across that idea and wanted to contest it. And so I'm looking at Adana Moreau as someone who tried, maybe even a little accidentally, to reclaim those stories for herself. <laughs> Jared Rabin came into Studio A for a John Daly session. Off their forthcoming LP, this is Something Left to Say. It was engineered by Ari Shellist.
Fourth confirmed case of Jepson's fever, aka Mallow 21, has been reported by Chicago Health Authorities. Um, I'm C-H-A. sure. Uh, it's very easy to. Uh, you've probably heard about this yeah. already, listener. So it's um, a huge, a huge cultural, just like a wave over our city. Yeah, it's it's struck 
fear into the hearts of many. Yes. Uh, it's a new gastrointestinal parasite that was first discovered in Sweden and just jumped to Chicago earlier in the week. Uh, there's already 34 so that, that are – I mean out there like jumping jump Jepsons is what they say. Oh, it, it, and it jumps. It jumps from one individual to another. Yeah, uh, most literally. It, it's – there's 34 reportedly that have been that have been found that are infected. Obviously, there could be many more. Mm-hmm. Listener, you might have it right now. Well, and we'll get to to the symptoms to look out for it very very shortly. But I might have it. It's worth mentioning that there have not been no reported fatalities as of now. Uh, several individuals do remain in critical condition, uh, simply because experts, uh, health experts statewide, are baffled on anything to do besides treat. Uh, the symptoms as they come along as opposed to finding a cure. Uh, I have a quote here from a public health official Harrison Beebles. Quote, we've never seen anything like this. More and more people are getting sick, and the only advice we've received from Sweden is to put them in the sauna. Now, we uh, I, I, that may very well be a good option, mm-hmm. but one, I do not feel as though the saunas in Chicago could be prepared for a full, a widespread no. um, infection of this of this pathogen. No, uh, the, the, the Swedish uh, the the Swedish sauna system is is expertly designed, and I think sometimes they the people in Sweden they they just are disconnected from our. Our culture just enough to to not really be helpful. Right, they matter. have they have single payer sauna over mm-hmm. in Sweden. Uh, the government has provides for those saunas here. Uh, we just don't that option. It's very difficult, and most insurance carriers do not consider sauna. Uh, won't cover saunas yeah. and visits there there too. This, the saunas is totally unstandardized too, totally disconnected from the EU. Yeah, there's no there. So that it's hard to gauge if that's gonna end up being a good option. Uh, so now to turn over to what we discussed earlier, uh, the symptoms of, uh, Mallow 21 mm-hmm. are, uh, there's a bunch of them, but the, uh, the most common ones are a, a persistent taste of wormwood in the mouth, mouth, uh, sensory reactions to electric and magnetic fields, uh, bitter discharge from the eyes, nose, and pores, and finally hair growth on the chest and inner leg. That's actually seen by and large as the, uh, the definitive way to to diagnose mm-hmm. uh, Jepson's fever. Yeah. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.